This is Chapter 64 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we'll meet a brave and inspiring woman who is leading the fight for women's rights in her native Iran. We take a trip to the last great American frontier, and we'll find out how Monsters in the Closet inspired best-selling fantasy writer Sherilyn Kenyon. Masi Alinejad is a force to be reckoned with. She's the creator of a social media movement campaigning for the right of Iranian women to choose whether or not they want to wear hijab. It's hashtag MyStealthyFreedom. Women have no choice when it comes to covering their hair, and those who defy the law risk punishment, even jail time. Masi chronicles her fight in her new memoir, The Wind in My Hair, and recently stopped by our studios to speak with our Marla Diamond. You have great hair, by the way. <laughs> Uncontrollable. <laughs> and big hair, and you're... You write about growing up in a strict Muslim family in a small northern Iranian uh, village where you had to cover that beautiful hair, uh, even around members of your own family. And, and you saw this as an injustice. And I'm wondering, how did you reach that conclusion at such a young age? Um, some people might think because I had too much hair. It was <laughs> too you know, big to cover the mob. That's why I just came out with the idea of fighting against you know, a compulsory hijab. But the thing is, when I was a little girl, I had no clue about um, equality, like freedom of choice, nothing. I had a little brother. So he was um, two years actually older than me. But he was my example like, of all the freedom that I was envying. I, I wanted to have it. Like, he was really um, free to run in a beautiful village and, and enjoy his freedom, like feeling the wind in his hair, jumping into the river, riding a bicycle. But I was not because I had to be a good girl, a proper girl in my traditional family. So that is why actually um, I just found out, you know, I want to have all the freedom that Ali has. So I started to, to complain and to ask Ali to help me to be with him and enjoy my personal, you know, uh, freedom and, and fighting with my family for all these kind of uh, restrictions. So you wore the hijab and a robe as well? So um, yes. So you know, in you Iran, completely covered up. you have to cover all your body. Just, you know, you can show off your, your face and hand, mm -hmm. then that's all. <laughs> Even for small girls, uh, is that mm. traditional in most um, Muslim-majority countries that girls have to dress this way? Um, mm. Most of us think of it as married women dressing this way. Um, look, from the age of seven... All girls, when they start school, they have to cover themselves. But in my family and some other, uh, you know, conservative family, we had to wear hijab even in front of my brothers and my father. But the, 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 the normal, the, the law actually uh, asks you to, to wear it from the age of seven, but the Sharia laws asking you to wear the hijab from the age of nine. I know it's complicated, mm -hmm. but Islamic Republic of Iran actually is more, it sounds like more restrict than the, the you know, other Muslim country because we have to wear it from the age of seven. If you don't wear it, then you won't be able to, get, to go to school. You won't be able to get a job. You won't be able to live in your own country if you stay no, I don't want to wear this. And it was always that way for you. You were born slightly before the Ir Iranian Revolution in 1979, but you generally grew up yeah. with uh, this mandatory hijab law. Yeah, I was, I was only two years old, which my parents and other people, they were hoping for greater 
freedom because mm -hmm. we already had um, social freedom. Right. Women were allowed to choose what they want to wear. Uh, women were judged. Women were, you know, participating in special sports. They were allowed to enter stadiums. A lot of things. And as I said in my book, that. I wanted to to play like football and and enjoy myself and then I couldn't and because and I was just like telling my dad that you know there are a lot of pictures of women they were allowed to ride a bicycle they were allowed to go right. to the stadium and they were saying that you know these are like good for you and we um, actually um, they were brainwashed I don't want to say anything bad about my parents mm -hmm. they were brainwashed that uh, all we had before the revolution was corrupted and now this is a proper Muslim country and I have to say that that revolution actually became the revolution against Iranian women because we lost all our freedom. So what's the penalty if you don't have your hijab on? Oh, that's a good question. Look, if you don't wear hijab, then you will be fined. You will go to prison between like two and ten months prison. Um, and and as, as I said that, um, you get uh, like you won't be able to go to school. But the thing is, um, if you protest against hijab, you don't wear it like by purpose, that's totally different. You will get like two years prison. You can get uh, 72 lashes. But for me, it's beyond that. It's about my identity. It's about my dignity. I hate when there are like men telling me what to wear. So the punishment for me, it's more about, you know, uh, humiliating me and, and patronizing me and telling that, you know, even, even the 60% of university are women, but you are not mature enough to choose what you want to wear. So the punishment, uh, according to the law, was that. But the thing is, um, within, within a year in, in Iran, uh, uh, as, as police of Iran announced, 3.6 million women were warned, just not because they were unveiled. They were sent to the court. They were warned. They were they were they were warned. They were stopped, and they were like being punished. Why? Because they were uh, like having inappropriate hijab. It means that you know some of your hair was out of your headscarf. <laughs> so the punishment is not just about being unveiled. It's about not wearing appropriate hijab as well, and it's about the men behind mm. it and the philosophy behind compulsory hijab. Well, you have uh, you have uh, founded a movement, uh, My Stealthy Freedom, and with the hashtag, it's really taken off, and it's it's led or been sort of the focus of a lot of protest yeah. uh, in Iran. Um, so, what do you you don't live there? Um, you're exiled. I live there. My body is here. Physically, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. You're here. My, Your my, heart is in Iran? And my soul, my work, my people. I mean, <laughs> those people who send me the videos and photos yeah. of the campaign, they are there. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think when you see that? Um, let me tell you something. I, I wrote a story in my book that uh, m my mom said that you were a naughty girl. And every time when you get you know, kicked out from people from any room and you were locked out, you were able to find a window and get yourself into the same room. So the government of Iran kicked me out from Iran. But social media is my window. Yeah. Every day I am there. You know, I was the one actually, um, we had a, I grew up in a poor family. So we had a black and white TV and I was the one watching always the, the policymakers, the mullahs, the clerics, the government telling me what to do, what to wear, how to behave. But now they are watching me. So that shows there are millions of women like me. They, they, they bro broke the censorship through this campaign. Right. And now this campaign, actually the most popular um, 
uh, campaign, an alive campaign about women's rights. Why? Because women like uh, taking their rights back, taking the streets back, uh, breaking the censorship, taking the media back, and all the government are talking about our protests. Before the, this movement, people were saying this is a small issue. You know, we have so many bigger mm -hmm. problems in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Let's solve the bigger problems. But if they don't let you to solve a small problem, they don't let you to control your head. How are, you gonna, how are they going to let you to control what's going on inside your hair? Right. When they're not allowing you to solve small problems, definitely this government will not gonna, you know, allow you to solve bigger problems. So we broke this taboo and this like, cliche that this is a small problem. No, this is about my body. This is about my identity. This is about my dignity. And now women are you know, uh, taking over you know, yeah. and challenging the, the main pillar of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right. Uh, and, and those women are doing it at great risk. I understand they're being uh, arrested. But, you know, here in, in New York, uh, we would call you a woman with a lot of chutzpah, which is <laughs> a lot, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of nerve to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. And you have to have nerves of steel to be doing what you're doing. And you're getting death threats and you cannot return to Iran and your family is not you're not really connected with your family. I mean, how, what is that like? Look, um, so I'm strong. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all, when, especially when I hear my government comes to New York in the United Nations and mm -hmm. they talk that, you know, um, we respect the women of Iran, we have absolute freedom in Iran, it breaks my heart. Because for me, it has been nine years that I don't have the, the right to hug my family. My, my family don't have the right to leave the country and come here. And there are so many like death threats that I receive. The, the, the government of Iran calling me like uh, the, the agent of CIA, the agent of MI6, the, the betray, no, traitor, a lot of things. They called me even ugly duckling. They don't know the end of the story of ugly duckling. So, but they call me all, I mean, with so many different names. Sometimes uh, they sh naming part of my body and shaming me. They ran in the state TV said that I was raped by three men in, in, in London because I undressed myself. These are so nasty things. But let me tell you something. I was crying from the beginning, like heartbroken, so sad, victimizing myself that why they do this to me. But now I feel that we are powerful and the government of Iran cannot do anything with us. They cannot control us. That's why they try to attack our sexuality. But don't you think... So I don't care about what they say. I look at the future and I go... It's... It's, you know, it's a feminist movement in a very paternalistic uh, country. And do you think most women would want to put themselves out there on the line when they could face jail, time fines, lashes, which sounds very scary? That's a good question. But and, and, and it is a Muslim-majority country. I mean, hijab is a, re is a requirement, right, mm -hmm. of conservative uh, Islam. In America, how people uh, gain the, the, the right to vote... They have been sacrificing their life in England. I mean, you see the history. Women have been sacrificing their life. I was pregnant when I got into prison. It was a shame for my family that a pregnant woman, you know, uh, 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 actually, uh, my family didn't know that I was pregnant because, uh, as I said in my book, <laughs> that I broke another taboo. Before getting married, I got pregnant. So, oh, boy. <laughs> so I had to fight for a lot of, you know, I had to push back for a lot of things. But the thing is, I sacrificed my life 
for freedom. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I have been fighting for every, every single thing that I achieved. Freedom is not free, you know? And sometimes I get really homesick. But this is the, the way that we have to go all together. You know, I, there were women, a woman who sent me a video of herself, Shima Babai in Iran, you know, the hijab processor, white headscarf and, and protesting in public. She knew this is a punishable crime. Yeah. And I, I actually warned her that I'm really worried about you. And she went, she, she, she was actually sent to the court just because of taking part in White Wednesday's campaign. And then she went in front of the court. She took off her headscarf, the white headscarf, which it's like a flag against compulsory hijab. And she said that, you're putting me in jail, you threaten me, mm-hmm. you're attacking me, you're shaming me, you, you just want to you know, keep me silent. I take off my hijab and I say no to compulsory hijab even louder. So that woman actually are leading the campaign. They are giving me hope. There was another woman who put the headscarf on a stick and waved that right. in public. She got arrested. She was a mother. She just reminds me of the time when I was a mother and I was in prison and I felt guilty. I felt, I mean, terribly guilty that I'm here, I'm safe, and she's fighting and she's putting herself in danger. How about her son? The day after when she got, I mean, not the day after, right after she got released from prison, I saw a picture of her in sending me on my telegram and saying that, Masi, I am free. I'm really proud of you and proud of myself. Publish that. I am free. Masi, here we are having sort of a, a, a revolution, a femi- feminist revolution with the hashtag, with the with Me Too movement, um, and women finally speaking out about sexual harassment and intimidation at the uh, hands of men. And I'm wondering how that type of a movement, which your movement is, plays in very conservative Iran, um, if oh. there's anyone listening. Oh, that, that's 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 really good question because right now there is a new um, initiative in my campaign called "My Camera Is My Weapon." Mm-hmm. How? Because when women walking unveiled in public, they get attacked by some of the conservative. As you mentioned, that it's like you know there are a lot of Muslim women they choose to wear hijab and we respect them. Like my mother, she she wears hijab, and I have so much respect for my mother. But the thing is, we have to educate some of them that. If I don't want to wear hijab, that doesn't mean I'm against you. Right. So now women filming those people who are attacking them and creating conversation. They're creating a debate, a public debate, because we don't have Iranian TV. We don't have any official media to talk about, you know, uh, compulsory hijab and many other uh, women's uh, rights issues. You would never be allowed on Iranian television. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, with this big hair and like sitting like this? Never. Never. But I'm sure they're going to watch us. <laughs> it, it's all controlled by yeah. the mullahs. Yes. The, yeah. So now people, they take to the street and using their mobile phone uh, and, and became their own media. Women became their own storytellers in the streets of Iran. So they are listening to us. One of the women sent me a video of herself. Um, she was just fighting with a conservative guy telling her that you are a whore because you don't cover yourself. Mm. And she was standing, she, she was so calm and said, I am not. I just want to live as, uh, you know, you live in Iran freely. And Iran is my country as well. 
And so, this video got three million views. No, no, let me just yeah. finish this one. There was another video of a woman got get she got bitten up by morality police savagely, widely bitten up by morality police. That video went viral. Even the Western media they always ignored us because they care about nuclear deal, not about human rights. <laughs> so they, they, actually the Western media hurt us. The government of Iran hurt us. The supreme leader of Iran hurt us. And that means we have the power, and this is the right time to hear the voice of Iranian women. Do women have a lot of power? Do they hold office? Are they part of the government in Iran? Are they allowed to drive? As oh, they, oh, this, is a, this is a lot. I, I get this question a lot. Women of Iran are allowed to drive. What we want is this. More than 60% of university are women. Right. Women are, in Iran are really educated. But all these achievements, we have been fighting for it. This is, there is nothing that the government of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, gave it to us. We have been fighting hard to achieve this. And what we want right now, this is 21st century. And this is ugly that women are banned from entering a stadium. Women are banned from singing solo. I have a good voice. I can sing for you. <laughs> you can sing but, right here. <laughs> but this is horrible that women cannot be a judge. I'm not allowed to have the custody of my child. I'm not allowed to travel abroad if I don't get the permission from my husband. Mm. I'm not allowed to get a passport. I mean, these are horrible. But women in Iran, they are educated, and there is a huge gap between the government of Iran and the people of Iran. So that is why, no, we don't have the uh, female minister. Women are not allowed to run the country. We are not allowed to you know, be, a pre be president. But... Now, women are actually the main agent of change in Iran. Trust me, change only comes through the women inside Iran. So, femi <laughs> the feminist movement is coming to yeah, Iran. Yeah, yeah, we so have a hair revolution. <laughs> the first thing. I'm, I'm wondering, um, you said you grew up in a conservative Muslim family. What do your parents think of this? You know, this is the most difficult part of interview I always get because I love my parents. You know, I, I adore my parents. But, but I didn't want to, uh, oh. yeah, they don't support my campaign. <laughs> It'd be easy to say that. But um, my mother has a, had a great role in my life. She taught me how to fight for my right. Yeah. She, um, she didn't go to university. She's not able to write and read. But she was the true feminist in my eyes. How? Because in a village... She was the one working. She had her own office in the garden, uh, growing vegetables and selling them to the people in our, the closest town in Iran. She was a street peddler. And, and she was, when my brothers were involved during the war, we didn't have any men in our, uh, our house. And we didn't have uh, inside bathroom. We had outhouse. And as I, I wrote in my book, actually, that any time when I wanted to go to the bath, uh, outhouse, it was scary. Mm. You know, imagine the garden was black. It was pitch black, even blacker than black, if such a thing is possible. And it was really scary. Okay. My mom used to say to me that, you know, if you really let your fear win, then the darkness can devour you. So just open your eyes as wide as you can. The darkness will disappear. Wow. This is the way that I learned to, to fight against all the darkness because the human right situation in Iran, like the mass execution after the revolution, all the discrimination, you know, against the women, it's really dark. 
but we learn to open our eyes as wide as we can. That's why I don't want to talk against my parents. <laughs> and I learned how to be brave, not victimizing myself and fight more for my freedom. More than a million people visit Alaska every summer. Most of them arrive on cruise ships. Travelers, myself included, are drawn to the remote U.S. state by dense forests, the chance to see glaciers up close, and the abundant wildlife. Eagles, bears, moose, you name it. For his latest book, Tip of the Iceberg, travel writer Mark Adams retraced the legendary 1899 expedition that first introduced Americans to the wonders of the last frontier and at the same time gave birth to the modern conservationist movement. And yes, there's a bear encounter or two along the way. What inspired you to make this epic journey through Alaska? Well, you know, it, it was 2015 when I got the idea. And in August of that year, um, you may recall, President Obama made his first trip to Alaska. And, you know, it became quite clear that Alaska was sort of the canary in the climate coal mine. You know, the glaciers that we all know from the cruise tours are melting. Uh, the permafrost is thawing, which means that, you know, foundations of buildings and, and highways are collapsing up there. Um, and, you know, some of these small coastal native towns, the, the ground is eroding and these towns are falling into the sea. They have to actually move these, these entire towns. Um, Around that time, I happened to come across a totem pole in Seattle where I read the, the story of the original totem pole that had inspired it. And it was this Harriman expedition of 1899, which I had never heard of. But it turned out that the railroad tycoon, Edward Harriman, had put together this sort of summer boondoggle on which he invited two dozen of America's you know, naturalist all-stars, including people like John Muir of the Sierra Club and George Bird Grinnell, of, who founded the Audubon Society, and took them off to Alaska. And when they got there, they, as many people still do, expected to find this sort of you know, natural wonderland, which they did, but they also found these impending environmental crises. So they got back from this 1899 trip and started, uh, you know, well, they weren't making phone calls then, but they were writing letters to their influential friends in Washington, D.C., who included, at that time, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was about to become president. And when he did become president, he started setting aside all of these areas, especially in Alaska, um, so that they could be preserved for future generations. You deal a lot in this book also with the dual nature of Alaska and its residents. Like on the one hand, right. there's this appreciation for this natural wonder, the beauty and the need to preserve it. But on the other hand, this idea of exploitation and that, well, you know, it's there, we should use it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's always the tension in Alaska, because there's this feeling that, you know, these resources are endless and bottomless and that we can just, you know, keep digging stuff out forever. Um, but they're not. And, and you know, Alaska has had three booms that have really defined its modern history. It had the fur boom, which brought the Russians in. It had the gold rush of the late 19th century, which you know brought a lot of white population up there for the first time. And for the last 40 years, almost 50 years, it's been living on an oil boom. And you know, oil prices crashed a few years ago. And Alaska's you know state budget is 90% dependent on oil revenues. So you know, the state is melting essentially and this is costing them money and at the same time oil is the is the source of, of almost all of their revenue so they have to figure out a way to balance these two things and that tension uh leads to a lot of interesting discussions is now the time to go oh yeah absolutely um you know the thing about alaska is um 
a lot of the things that it's known for, like the spectacular tidewater glaciers, which are those that lead all the way down to the water, uh, you know, 99% of those are melting. So it's not going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, within 100 years, a lot of the glaciers that are most famous up there will probably be no longer visible from the water. And I know there might be a few people who are listening who will say, well, you said 99%, so that means there's 1% that is not <laughs> retreating. Just answer those those climate deniers, like there is a rational scientific explanation for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. 97 plus percent of climate scientists agree that increased levels of man-made gases, uh, you know, in or man-caused gases in the atmosphere um, have begun this incredibly rapid increase in temperatures. And what people will say is, you know, glaciers go in cycles, climates go in cycles, and they do. But the current spike in warming is 10 times greater than any recorded in the last 650,000 years. So it's, it's way off the charts. And the scary thing is, is it seems to be accelerating and we have no idea where it's going. Um, as for the 1% of glaciers in Alaska that are still growing, they're growing because it takes five or 600 years for the snow to pack down into ice and make its way all the way down the mountain to the water. So some of the, the glaciers in Alaska that are still growing, they're pushing ice out into the water that first fell as snow before Columbus arrived in the New World. It's crazy when you think about it in the timeline that way. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing about Alaska is it, it has this sort of, you know, geological scale timeline, you know, when you're looking at Denali, when you're, you know, looking at the bears, when you're looking at these glaciers and the water and everything, it, it, it seems to be a little bit outside of time. And it allows you the opportunity to sort of reflect on this. And then you realize how much is in jeopardy. You spoke with a lot of different people all over the state. What is their feeling in regards to what can be done to halt climate change in Alaska? You know, a lot of them had the attitude, uh, you know, hey, you know, China and India, everyone's going to want to buy a car there as they, you know, keep improving the, the economy. Um, why don't we just, you know, get as much as we can right now? Um, a lot of people are sort of hooked on this annual dividend check that everyone in the state of Alaska, man, woman, and child, receives based on oil royalties. Um, at the same time, there's a very strong uh, environmental movement there, um, even in the smaller towns. And people are realizing, you know, look, there's a lot at stake here. This is, this is our way of life. And, you know, the, the streams we depend on, the salmon, you know, a, a lot of people up there get their food from, from hunting and foraging and fishing. Um, you know, all of that can go away. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to last forever just because we want it to. Well, we can't talk about Alaska without also talking about bears. <laughs> and I, it's very funny the way you write about them. I wrote a couple of things down here. You write they're like the weather in Alaska yeah. and that also dealing with bears is something you're supposed to pick up by osmosis before getting yourself in trouble, kind of like proper subway etiquette in New York City. Right, which is exactly the, the sort of intuition I felt because people wouldn't like come out and give me, you know, exact advice. But it was obvious that I should know how to deal with these creatures because everybody just sort of did, um, you know. And, and as you, you hinted at, you know, the, the bear maulings in Alaska, especially in the summer, 
um, when they're most active. It, it's like, you know, in, in New York, you get, you know, news, weather, sports. But in Alaska, you get news, weather, sports, maulings. It's just a, a regular category. Um, and it, it, there really is like a, a science to figuring out, you know, which type of bear you have to react in a certain way because you react to a brown bear very differently than you react to a black bear. And sometimes it's impossible to tell if a bear is a brown bear or a black bear. Right. It has to do with a hump or something, right? Yeah. The, the brown bear has a hump on its back that you have to look for, sort of a, a distinguishing feature. Um, you know, but the, more than once I heard uh, the best strategy is to bring a gun and someone slower than you. <laughs> And in the end, I know uh, we don't want to give too much away. You did have a very close encounter and came out I, unscathed. <laughs> I did. We we ended up on a, uh, an, an isolated island, if you can say such a thing, in the middle of Glacier Bay where it looked like no bear had ever set foot. And uh, let's just say we were wrong times two. <laughs> so uh, where are you planning to travel next and write about next? You know, I'm thinking about uh, taking a trip to uh, East Africa. Uh, for um, you know, uh, conservation purposes, maybe doing a book based on that. Um, also thinking about taking a, a trip around the world by various forms of water, uh, trying to do a trip around the world without getting into a wheeled vehicle. Uh, but I'm, I'm kicking around a lot of ideas right now. Well, all of that sounds amazing. And good luck. We look <laughs> forward to reading the, the next adventure novel that you end up writing. Wonderful. I really appreciate it, Lisa. Thank you for your time today, Mark. If you're looking for something different to read this summer, pick up a book by Sherilyn Kenyon. She's a best-selling fantasy writer whose books chronicle the age-old fight between good and evil. Her latest is called Death Doesn't Bargain, and it's this week's Beach Read Pick. You're not the first, and you probably won't be the last person to write about demons, angels, witches, mermaids. What inspired you to create uh, a world featuring these creatures? Well, you know, I'm the granddaughter of a Baptist preacher. It kind of goes hand in hand, I think. (laughs) What is it about these stories that have inspired so many stories and and your stories? Well, you know, I think the the whole contemplation of good and evil and, you know, things that go bump in the night, I I think it's just part of being human, you know, and trying to make sense out of evil. Monsters in the closet, I, I think it's just who and what we all are. Of course, if you have a mom like mine, it's just second nature. My mother was a, not the typical mom. You know, most parents are, mom, there's something in my closet. They try and placate you. My mother was the kind of mother who's like, of course there is. And honey, if you get out of that bed again, it's going to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> so you learned early on there was a good world and an evil world out there. <laughs> Exactly. And my mother made good use of it. You know, it's like, yeah, not some of it here for you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so we are talking about mythological creatures, but their emotions and the feelings and the way you write them, they're just like humans, aren't they? The way I play with them, they are. Yeah. I, I think even among evil, there's good, there, there's lesser forms. And, you know, I, I think it all serves a purpose, you know. And I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but how do you keep track of everything you've created? I have no, I, I can't keep track of other things. You know, you'll find my car keys in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Fantasy writers, they've been knocked for a while for mistreating female characters. But your women are so strong, whether that's in a really, really good way or in a really, really evil way. Uh, did you set out at all to write that John was wrong or was this just something, this is how you see these female characters? Well, you know, I, I come from a lo- long, long line of very 
long females. Um, you know, I, I'm related to Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's my great, great, great grandmother. So, you know, it, it's just very, the woman I grew up with, you know, my mother was, you know, my dad was a drill sergeant. And he used to joke that she was the scariest thing he ever faced. He did five tours at war. And he's like, you know, I'd rather be at war than face your mother in one of our moods. So <laughs> it's just, you know, second nature to, to what I knew growing up. So, yeah, I, the the women I write about are just what I, I knew. You know, my grandmother was born at the turn of the century. And, you know, again, my grandfather was tough, but he was nothing compared to my grandmother. He'd get up every Sunday morning and make breakfast for her. It's like, don't wake the dragon. You know? <laughs> So there is some real-life inspiration behind your stories. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we all towed the line with my grandmother. You know, Like I said, he was the preacher, but my grandmother had that stern look. It's like, yeah, no, she, she was the true hellfire and damnation, you know? So Death Doesn't Bargain is the second book in the Demons Cross series, but you're a prolific and best-selling writer. Where should new readers start for the best introduction to what you've written? Always with the beginning, but I, I write every book because I, I'm that reader where no matter how hard I try, I always come in somewhere in the middle of a series. I don't know how it is I manage that. So when I'm writing, I, I try to keep that in mind. I, I want if you come in in the middle, you won't be lost. So I write every book to where it you, you can start anywhere. So you won't be lost if you do start with you know anywhere. And I know you have a huge fan base. What is it like to to get that reaction for each and every book that new book that you have come out? Oh, it's amazing! Yeah, I, my God, my readers are, are everything to me, and you know, I, I, I'm still at the end of the day amazed. And yeah, I, anytime somebody comes up, it's like, oh, thank God you're here. You know, I, I panic because I'm from this really big, huge family, and I, I will never forget my brother showed up one time in a signing, and of course, you know, I, I have a brother seven years younger than me. And I think he said it best. Honey, I went across the street to meet you. If you had $50, owed owed me. Yeah. <laughs> so, they keep you humble, you know. Uh, the best quote in the world, they won't ever let me put it on a book. But personally, I think it says it all. You know, my brother, he finally bought one and read it. And he's like, wow, it didn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> that is high that's praise. <laughs> right? You know, when your little brother says that, that's the best endorsement in the world. Absolutely. So what are you working on next? Uh, right now I'm doing uh, edits on Sidian. Uh, yay! <laughs> uh, the next book at, in Dead Men's Cross um, at Death Store, which is really, you know, Valinda's book. And yeah, oh, oh. I, I keep wanting to give spoilers. I'm horrible. I can't keep secrets. <laughs> well, the new book, Death Doesn't Bargain, this was a very fun interview. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And that's where we'll leave things for this week. We're taking a few weeks off. I know, I know, try not to miss us too much. But if I know you, and I think I do, I'm sure you've got a book or two or three in your to-be-read pile that'll help you pass the time. Feel free to let us know what you're reading by reaching out to us on Twitter at WCBS880Books or email me directly at lisat at WCBS880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at WCBS880.com. <laughs>